Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is architect Jeff Day. We talk about the role of architecture in our individual and communal existence, the cultural influences shaping our buildings, and some of the contemporary conversations in this field. Day also shares his personal influences and philosophies for designing our built environment. You know, some architects believe that architecture with a capital A only exists in that sort of primary realm of the sort of important building, and the rest of it is something else. But I think architecture's job is not to solve problems, but to problematize the world in some way and cause us to think about how we inhabit space. It should do that in such a way that is still supportive of, of its sort of basic need. I mean, I don't want people tripping and falling and thinking, hey, architecture. Jeffrey Day is the founding principal of Actual Architecture Company and a professor of architecture at the University of Nebraska. Day has received numerous awards, including the Architectural League of New York's 2016 Emerging Voices Award and a 2019 Progressive Architecture Award and many, many more besides. And his work is published in a wide range of journals, design magazines, and books. In 2019, Day was elevated to fellowship in the American Institute of Architects, an honor bestowed on only 3% of member architects. Day previously has been elected as an at-large board member of the Association of Collegiate Schools of Architecture and currently serves on the board of the National Architecture Accreditation Board. Jeff Day, welcome to Lives. Thank you, Stuart. So I do feel that this is impossibly broad, uh, but I want to start with it. Anyway, and I'm sure our conversation will circle around this theme generally, but Churchill said, we shape our buildings, thereafter, they shape us. How has building, how have buildings, how has architecture shaped you? I I think it's a great question. Architecture is a multidisciplinary art in the sense. Um, I actually think of architecture as something, a, a practice that exists between the sciences and the arts. Uh, some people come to it from the arts, which is the way I kind of entered into architecture. Uh, others come to it from a more science and and building technology standpoint, um, dealing with human sciences as well as as sort of the physical sciences of of structure. Um, but I, I, what what draws me to architecture is the ability of architecture to frame social space um, and to create spaces that allow society and cultures to evolve. Um, while at the same time constraining certain activities. Any decision made in architecture is limiting freedom in some way, which is an interesting way to think about it. But um, I think of architecture as a way of engaging the world in, uh, in a very direct and, and, and sometimes uh, maybe sort of understated way in the sense that artwork, when you go to an art gallery and you're looking at a piece of art, you're contemplating that art very directly. Architecture is generally understood more haptically, just um, sort of passively as you move through buildings. We're in a building right now. We're not thinking about the walls and the window. I mean, I might be because that's what architects do, <laughs> but we're not necessarily thinking about everything around us. We're experiencing it in a, in a sort of more haptic way. Is that part of the beauty of good architecture? That you, the participant, the, the human being that's participating in this built space, doesn't really observe their passage or existence within that space? Or perhaps is architecture better when it does provoke you to think about the space you're in? I I think it should do both. I think on the one hand, architecture serves a purpose. Even the most sort of dramatic art museum or theater building that is really there to celebrate itself almost as much as what it contains, uh, it still has to serve um, uh, sort of functional requirements, but most of the buildings we spend our our days in are are understated, sort of maybe even background buildings. They're not dramatic works of architecture. You know, some architects believe that architecture with a capital A only exists in that sort of primary realm of the sort of important building, and the rest of it is something else. I I, I tend to think of it as a continuum. 
and and architecture is always around us. Um, but I do think it should provoke. I think architecture's job is not to solve problems, but to problematize the world in some way and cause us to think about how we inhabit space. It should do that in such a way that is still supportive of of its sort of basic need. I mean, I don't want people tripping and falling and thinking, hey, architecture. Um, but uh, I do think that architecture has the ability to make us think about um, you know, just how we inhabit the world. It's interesting then to me that you've contrasted, I think, our awareness of how we exist in the world and how we interact with the environment and the built space. And, and then also this contrast and juxtaposition of the science of the practice and, and, and the artistry of the practice. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind speaking a little more then about architecture's job or role to create a built form expression that meets a function or, or and or a built form expression that somehow expresses or taps into our human desires or aspirations. Maybe I'll start by talking about an example of a project we did, the Blue Barn Theater uh, in, in Omaha, which a lot of people were probably familiar with on South 10th Street. This was the first new building that the institution of the Blue Barn um, you know, constructed. They had previously been inhabiting um, existing buildings, warehouses. The way they inhabited space I found very interesting. They used old set material. It was very ad hoc. They just sort of created their spaces with what they had at hand. And for us to build a building that signified their advancement, um, but at the same time held tight to their ethos, meant um, sort of carefully knitting together sort of advanced sort of theater technology. They, they obviously wanted a more, you know, a more advanced theater space with better lighting, better sound control, all of those things that, you know, technical theater needs. But they didn't want to do that in such a way that it, it uh, got in the way of their ethos of, of the institution and its sort of scrappiness. So we came up with a way, um, you know, we had a great privilege working with Susan Clement, the producing artistic director. And working with Susan, we came up with a way to create a, a modern building that sort of had an ageless quality and a bit of an ad hoc quality to it, which is difficult in architecture given the way buildings are procured and delivered to the public with contracts, completion dates, and so on and so forth. Usually it's all done when it's done and the doors are unlocked and it starts to be used. We wanted to create a sense of this building is always evolving. So we started by commissioning four artists to actually design and build components of the building. We sort of shed some of our authorship to these artists um, deliberately to create some tension within the building so that when the public would arrive, they would they would see something that, that sort of felt like it was a work in progress, um, that it's being inhabited by the creative people who, who drive the institution. And um, they keep doing that. So there's many things have happened in that building since the contractors and the architects left. They've had other artists come and do other, other pieces. They recently built a gate in the back of the building. Um, and so we're really proud of the fact that this building expresses its, um, the ethos of its, um, you know, its, its inhabitants. And, um, and the public, I, I believe, kind of understands that. Maybe, again, not consciously necessarily, but haptically through their sort of movement through the building. I like that you talk about honoring, somehow tapping into and understanding, intuiting the ethos of the organization that's ostensibly controlling, the, basically that's paying you to create it, but also acknowledging that there is a, a user experience to this as well. I want to go, as it were, upstream with that idea about ethos and ask you about your ethos as an architect. Do, do you have, and I'm not even sure how to describe this, but some kind of philosophy around how you think the practice of architecture should, should be practiced for your purposes? Uh, I do. It's not something we write down and it's not on our website, so to speak, but we, um, we are interested in creating buildings that have uh, sort of a slow release time in their impact. And, and I say that because of what we're trying to avoid, and I'm going to quote uh, the artist Ed Ruscha, who actually was born in Omaha. Um, he's an LA-based artist. And he said that um, good art should elicit, huh, wow, 
uh, feelings and reactions rather than wow, huh? Meaning that an artwork or an architect, a work of architecture that your where your first impression is wow, look at that incredible building, but then you're sort of underwhelmed afterwards is is far less effective than a building that at first maybe appears confounding, a little hard to understand, or even understated. But then slowly, as you inhabit the space or move around it or look at its you know, appearances and in, in images, you start to realize that there's a subtle sophistication. So that's something that we strive to do with our buildings, to create these experiences that at first maybe feel somewhat generic or even very straightforward. But then slowly you start to understand that there's, there's nuance and maybe very um, understated excitement built into the spaces that you're, that you're inhabiting. And so that's essentially something that we, we aim to produce in, in all of our work, a, a kind of understatement, but, um, you know, to more or less success in, in some cases. I also like something else that you said in describing your mindset around the design of the Blue Bond, which was sort of suggestive of giving up control. So you talked about inviting these artists to contribute to the feel and the, and, and the use and the aesthetic of the space. And I think giving up control for anybody, whether you're a professional creative or abstractly creative, is a difficult thing to do. And I've heard you speak before a little bit about uh, using a, a reference point, a metaphor around farmers and cowboys. And I don't know how much control relates to, to those, but would you talk a little bit more about this um, mindset, this comparison? Farmer cowboy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we. Um, so that was actually the the, the title of a lecture that my pre- previous partner E. B. Min and I gave um, a few years ago. And you know, a lot of our lectures are sort of begin uh, sort of thought about mindset about how we think about architecture, and then we sort of explain that through examples of of, of the work, the projects. So the cowboy and farmer. Um, it's sort of a, a pair of archetypes, and I, I don't want to offend any cowboys or farmers, given that we are in Nebraska. Um, this is an extreme oversimplification. It's not really about cowboys and farmers. It's about a, a mindset for a, a creative individual. It's an abstraction. So, um, again, apologies to any farmers and cowboys out there. Um, but we, we talk about this as a way of taking two relatively opposed archetypes and trying to operate between them. Um, with the tension between them. So when we think about a farmer, a farmer, uh, you know, plants their crop in, in the spring, tends it, harvests it in the fall. Their entire livelihood is dependent on the success of that crop. They're not going to take many risks. You're not going to find a farmer saying, I think I'm going to plant my field in a spiral because it's cool. Um, and then realize they can't actually harvest and it, you know, they lose their shirt. So a farmer is, um, is going to follow procedure and then execute that procedure with an absolute precision. Whereas a cowboy, on the other hand, is more likely to speculate, to take some some risks, um, but those risks often have a strong payoff. So you're moving your cattle from one field to the next, taking a chance on the weather. Um, given that the world is very unpredictable, the weather is extremely unpredictable. Um, you can't operate in the same way as, as the farmer. And so for us, I think it's a, it's operating between control and, and um, experimentation and, and, and lack of control and architecture that can do both, I think is very successful. I wonder then if I could invite you to give, you know, another illustration of a project that, that might give some, some three dimensional structural substance to, to that idea that you've just been sharing about the control and these these archetypes of planned, maybe unplanned, some degree of discovery, but also some degree of um, you know expectations being met. I, I wonder if there's a project that springs to your mind that maybe illuminates some of those thoughts. Um, well, the Blue Barn, as I've mentioned, clearly does the, the seeding of control in order to have the potential for um, you know much more uh, you know, unexpected and surprising results. Um, many architects are very concerned about controlling the result. And part of that is the nature of we have to deliver a project. It has to be built on time and on budget. You know, we have a lot of other people involved in this and things we don't control, budgets, client desires, 
contractors, so on. There's a lot of, it's, it's a group effort and it's hard to control the whole group. And I think a lot of architects get frustrated when they don't get the perfect results. So we were trying to find a way through the Blue Barn to cede that control and just be open to the unexpected. You know, we ask this of our clients that when they work with us, that they engage in a project or a process as part of developing a project with an unexpected and uh, uncertain end. We don't typically like to work with clients who arrive with a very specific idea of what they want and they just want us to, quote unquote, drop the plans. I mean, it's just not appealing to us. We, we like the exploration of the process and we ask them to go on this adventure with us. I, I want to talk, though, about a different kind of project that almost inverts that. And, and it's a project we call the Wedge House that was built in New Zealand, um, finished at the end of 19, uh, 2019. And this project came about in a very kind of unexpected and unique way in that um, about 15 years ago, I designed a house for my mother in Maine that was based on her needs sort of as a retired person um, you know, with my brother and I long gone. The house sort of ended up in a certain way because of her needs, the site she, was, she had, and it became this very straightforward form, like literally looks like a wedge, like a doorstopper. And, um, you know, with, with much more complexity on the interior, she didn't build the house for a variety of reasons. We then sort of modified it for a startup website called Hometa that was selling, you know, well-designed house plans on the internet. They, they launched that company in 2009, which was not a good time to launch a business. And it, you know, as you can imagine, didn't go too well and they ended up kind of letting it go dormant, but the website stayed live. And then Fast forward to 2017, uh, a couple in New Zealand, a, a, an orchestra conductor and, and a violinist, uh, had property in the South Island of New Zealand, and they just decided to build a house. They stumbled upon our design and got connected to me to purchase the plans. Uh, I sold them the plans. I thought that's probably the last I'll hear of it. They'll hire a builder, and who knows what'll happen. But, but they were very concerned that what they built was tied very closely to our vision. So in a sense where we were designing something here with the lack of control entirely, we basically sold the plans, had nothing to do with it after that. These people came back and wanted us to have actual control. They basically wanted our control. They wanted us to produce something you know, highly detailed, but they didn't have the budget to have me fly back and forth to New Zealand to have meetings. So it was done entirely by um, you know, Zoom and Skype calls. Uh, we did modify the design slightly. It, it looks more or less the same, but it's a little bit bigger. All the materials are changed, so the New Zealand materials and construction systems. Um, it was on a, a reality television show called Grand Designs New Zealand, and Grand Designs did fly me down there for a, a, an appearance on the show as a site visit, uh, which was wonderful. And uh, in the end, this house appears as if it's designed highly specifically for this site. Even the slope of the roof matches the ridge behind it. And you see it on this incredibly beautiful 10-acre property in the mountains in, this, in the South Island of New Zealand, appearing as if it is you know, highly controlled and very site-specific, yet it, it's actually like a product essentially purchased off the shelf and slightly modified. And I, I think that's a really kind of interesting inversion of what one expects through the work of, of an architect that that it's a that we produce unique um, designs for unique spaces where this is really a generic design adapted for a specific place. Earlier on, you talked about the potential perception with certain architects that architecture with a capital A is real architecture. That's the real thing. It's the literature, highbrow literature of the architectural world. Whereas any old architecture with a small A is that that's your paperback stuff anybody can do it and i love that you're describing what is really a very modern way to approach um, house design which is to prepare some plans have them available maybe tailor them a bit and then they can be slotted into the space but we're not actually standing on the plot and carefully crafting every element of this design with that particular you know, acre of land in mind and I think that is a really interesting tension. And, and I'm curious about how you feel about that tension. You know, how do you wrestle with this idea of a, a pretty simple 
off-the-shelf product compared with work you do to stand in a space that's empty and consider what needs to happen? Well, I think it's, it is a really interesting question. And I think a lot of architects would sort of talk about the sort of myth of this sort of building emerging from the, uh, a site in a city or a landscape. When in reality, you know, most houses have the same spaces and they might be slightly arranged in, in slightly different ways or commercial buildings are pretty generic. But the way architecture is produced is, you know, generally in this sort of one-off way. Like you don't go buy a car and, and someone doesn't design a car for you. I mean, it would cost you a million dollars for a car. The car can be sold to you for, I don't know what cars cost these days, like twenty, thirty thousand dollars or something, you know, any there's a range, obviously, but it can be sold to you for that amount because it's produced in very large quantities. Um, you don't have a car designer showing up and, and figuring out do you need five wheels or three wheels or oh let's go with four wheels. You know, it's just a it's a different world. And I think architecture has maybe missed its opportunity to to engage with that kind of production. Now, as much as I say that there is a lot of architecture that is produced that way, you don't understand that maybe as a member of the public, but a lot of buildings are produced out of standard components. Most American architecture is really produced not by craftspeople, but by expert shoppers. Like things are purchased out of catalogs, standard systems are applied. Um, anywhere from you know framing systems to cladding to windows, there's there's a lot of standardization with the, the ability to customize to produce the the unique kind of feature. So this wedge house in Wanaka, New Zealand, it, it is truly beautiful, and it does sit in in an environment where there is uh, you know a mountainous terrain, a, a pretty wild seeming terrain, and and the house looks really stunning in that environment. So images of, of that can be seen at your website. It does make me want to ask you about the business of an architect. How did you get to the name, Actual Architecture Company? It's a good question. So uh, my previous practice, um, which I had for 15 years, was called Minday. My partner's last name and my last name, both three letters. We thought, well, that kind of works nicely and it looks good on a page. And, and that's kind of a traditional way of naming an architecture firm. It's named after the partners. And what usually happens is the name of the partners is there. Eventually those partners retire and then it becomes three letters or two letters. And, you know, there's lots of firms with, a, you know, alpha, what we call alphabet firms where it's just a number of letters. So they kind of evolve from these specific, you know, human-centered sort of practices to more generic corporate practices. So my partner and I, after years of practicing with offices in San Francisco and Omaha, decided to split into two separate companies. And at that point, I was faced with naming my new practice, uh, which was really just an evolution of the previous practice. I mean, it's all, it was almost a seamless transition. Um, but I did not want my name attached to it for a number of reasons. One is really trying to, to be honest and direct about the idea that architecture is produced by a group of people. It's not produced by an individual genius. And I'd I didn't want the assumption that, you know, Jeff Day Architect is, is, is all about me. It's about the people who work, we work with. So that was sort of the prime motivation for not using my name. And then came the search for a name. And I like the idea of, of somewhat generic names. I mean, this goes back to this sort of idea of the ethos of the, of the architecture, which sort of it first appears slightly generic, but then this sort of the wonder and uniqueness starts to come through. So I tried to think of a name that had that sense of, of generic quality uh, to it. At the same time, I also operate a design build program at the University of Nebraska called FACT or Fabrication and Construction Team. And design build, I'll just briefly describe that as a way of teaching architecture where students are actually involved in real projects and they, they often get involved in the construction of those projects. So they're learning by doing as opposed to working sort of removed from the world in the studio. So I had fact, and I wanted to think of a name that worked well with fact. And I thought, well, actual fact, that's kind of interesting. And kind of, you know, this was sort of around the time of alternative facts. And I thought this would be a nice way to kind of, kind of have a little bit of humor in the, in the name. Um, and then actual architecture company sort of became the evolution of that idea as a partner to fact. 
and I, I trademarked it and, um, you know, was able to kind of move this name forward. The other side of it though, is that I like the notion of the, the act in actual, that it's an act. Architecture is an act on the world or with the world. There's always some kind of, you know, imposition of something new and decision. So there's an act of quality to it. So I wanted to make sure that came through in, in the name. And then lastly, I think the idea of actual architecture, meaning really focusing on the core of architectural practice, and that is the building. And I, I think there's a lot of value in buildings as buildings. And so I wanted to make sure that our practice was, as much as architecture has expanded and, you know, um, architects can, can be involved in a lot of different kinds of creative problem-solving exercises, I wanted to say that the focus on architecture as building is still relevant. There's, there's a lot to be said about buildings. So you need to make money. Like to exist in the world, we, we need to create careers that produce money to help us do the work we want to do. Um, that being said, I, I am curious about the kind of work not only that you do, but that you aspire to do. So what do you say yes to or hope to say yes to? And actually, what, what's the work that you just say no to? I'm not really focused specifically on a type of work. Like I'm not just about, you know, cultural buildings and museums, not just about custom homes. We do both of those. We're more interested in projects that are interesting to think about for us or, or have a, a, a quality of exploration. As I mentioned before, I'm not interested in just having a project that I can crank out and make a high profit margin on because I can do it in like, you know, very short amount of time. So it needs to be a project that has something unique to it or an, an element of exploration. I, I love working with individuals and families on custom homes because it, the relationships are very clear and simple. Generally, we're working with you know a couple or a family and it's their space. And so it's just a really great moment to work with folks to, to realize that. And we do this at all budget levels. It's not just affluent people in their vacation homes. It's it's everyday folks. Um, and, and, you know, the challenge of doing affordable housing, I think is really important. Housing is extremely necessary and architects can be involved in that. Um, but we also like working with nonprofits and cultural organizations, um, like Bema center for contemporary arts or blue barn as I've previously mentioned, um, because we're really interested in the creative process, both in our own practice, but also other organizations that are, sort of framed around the creative process and love to work with them to help realize spaces for artists. Again, thinking about how the architecture can support the creation of artwork rather than just celebrate it through its own you know, imagery. Speaks a little bit too to how you thought about earlier, the kind of client you want. So a client that wants you just to give you, I, I think the expression you used was uh, just do the drawings. That is a client that you would say no to because it's, n it's not a good fit. But a client that wants to go on an exploration with you, they're as open as you are to what might be. That's the kind of client you want to collaborate with. Exactly. Now, it doesn't mean that they don't come with ideas. I mean, I think Blue Barn came with a lot of ideas, uh, but they were open-ended enough. They didn't just say, hey, here's an image we found on the internet. We want you to build that. We actually had a client once. And the end of the story is it turned into a wonderful client relationship and a beautiful house that we finished in, in Canada recently. But they saw a house that we designed at Lake Okaboji and contacted us. They saw it published and they, they wanted to hire us to do a house on a lake in, in Canada. And we thought, great. And uh, we sort of explained the process. They'd never worked with architects before. So we kind of explained the, the, the process. Now, like, no, we want that house. Like they wanted to buy the plans for the house at Okaboji. And I was like, well, that's not, that was a very unique house. It's not like the wedge house that could be adapted. It was very unique to a particular place and owners. And it would also be maybe a little bit unethical to sell plans that someone else had basically paid for you know, through the fees. So we, we said, well, okay, we will, we'll take the sort of initial ideas of that house, the way it sits on the land and relates to the lake and as a starting point, and then we'll see where it goes. And of course, this new project went in a very different direction and materials are very different. You know, if you squint at the floor plan, you might see a sort of general relationship that's similar, but that's, that's the extent of it. So that's a case where 
it could have gone in a very different direction, but because the owners sort of came around to our, our way of thinking about process, it, it went differently. I think the last thing I would say about projects we would not accept, where there are unreasonable expectations, like uh, a client may want to build an apartment building, but they want to do it at a very rock bottom construction cost with an extremely minimal fee, and it's just not possible to do good work. Like if we see a project that where we think we can't succeed, we don't really want to be involved in that, which doesn't mean we don't do apartment buildings and projects like that, but we want to make sure that they're, they're well-conceived and, um, and, and, and everyone understands the expectations and realities of, of producing the work. You know, there's real world implications, costs, physical materials, but we've also talked somewhat about aspirations and, and how we exist in the spaces that we occupy, that sort of thing. And there is this statement on the website of Actual Architecture Co. that your practice integrates design research, speculative design practice, and a commitment to building architecture that enhances culture and community. I was really struck by that last part about enhancing culture and community. And I wondered if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit more about what is that commitment? of your practice to enhance culture and community? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I think that, that exists in, in, in much of our work, specifically the work we do with nonprofits and, and creative um, enterprises. Many of these nonprofits we work with are based in, in neighborhoods and communities. Um, we've worked with uh, on a project that's still potentially to be built, hasn't been built yet, in, in North Omaha. It's artist housing adjacent or nearby the, the Union for Contemporary Art. And it's a project that's really based in that community. And um, it's something that we were interested in as a way to work with a community, but for a particular segment of that community. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the residents of that community, of that, of that project, once it's built, would be maybe from there. But what was said to us by one of our advisors, um, you know, we had a lot of public meetings as part of this project, and someone said, it's not important that someone comes from the community, but they be for the community. And so really trying to think about how, how architecture, urban space, and places can be enhanced in such a way that has a positive impact on everyone in the community, not necessarily those who inhabit the buildings. Um, maybe people who just happen to be in the neighborhood can benefit from that. So we want to make sure that all the projects we do have a... a a larger impact than specifically for their their client and and particular user group. And even this even goes for the custom homes that at some point the home is in a in a neighborhood or in a community, and we want to make sure it has a positive impact. Um, so that's kind of a, a a touchstone for us that everything we do needs to be sort of seen as constructive of community space. Um, and and I think that literally translates into projects that maybe have open public spaces in them. The Blue Barn Theater is a theater building. It's mostly enclosed. There's an adjacent building called Boxcar 10 that we designed at the same time. Um, but there's an open space in the back that is a public, a privately owned public space. It's a little public park that the Blue Barn uses for events, but it's open to the public. And it was a way of giving something back to the community that is both supportive of the institution, but also of the of the wider neighborhood. And, uh, and so I think that's... Um, yeah, at the at the heart of, of what we want to do. I'm curious where this spirit comes from. You've been sharing a lot of how you feel about the world showing up in your work. And I'm curious about where all of this emerged from. And so as you look back in your early life, to your childhood, what sort of memories stand out to you? Well, I have an interesting childhood and background all surrounding sort of unexpected travel, I guess you could say. You know, my parents, as I think back to it, did we did not, my brother and I didn't grow up in a sort of typical suburban kind of environment that, you know, where we went in the same neighborhood from birth through high school. I was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My family lived there until I was about four. Then we moved to Maine. My dad gave up his sort of corporate PR job to write a novel. And this in, in the early 70s. And then, yeah, four years of living in Maine, doing different things, including writing the novel. 
after the time of Watergate, the last time there was a criminal in the White House, as I like to say, my family decided to move as, and essentially move as far away as they could from this sort of toxic political environment and still speak English because they didn't speak any other languages. So we moved to New Zealand. And this has nothing to do with the house in New Zealand. That came out in an entirely different uh, way. But we moved to New Zealand when I was eight years old, and we ultimately lived there for five years as a permanent move. I mean, it was not intended to be a temporary thing. Ultimately, we moved back to Maine, partly because my parents felt that my brother and I would have more opportunities if we finished high school in the United States and you know, had more opportunities for college and post-secondary life and so on. And, and we had grandparents who were aging and so on. So in the 1970s, moving to New Zealand was really kind of off the edge of the world. I mean, you know, there's no internet. International phone calls are extremely expensive at that time. So um, it was very isolating um, in, in that sense, in terms of family connections. So, but I think living in these sort of really different environments has been a really significant impact on on my life and thinking about how how space and place impacts who you are as a person and and how communities kind of evolve in these in these environments given their circumstances. I've also traveled quite a bit as a uh, after my graduate school. Um, uh, in California, I, I received a, a traveling fellowship and ended up traveling for 13 months straight. And the goal of that trip, um, the, the, the application that I, I applied to, to get this grant, I wanted to look at the sort of borderlands of cultural spaces where a sort of very dominant, very visible and strong sort of cultural identity encounters its sort of edges. So the trip was sort of split into two components. One part was to travel around the border of Tibet, sort of central Tibet and understanding like Tibetan architecture as something very much based in a particular sort of cultural and religious sort of background. There's very strong symbolism in that architecture. But then to look at what happens when you get to Nepal or northern India and the Tibetan culture kind of faces other, other cultures at its edges, how does the architecture respond to that? you know, climate and environment is obviously a part of this. It's not just about culture. And then I went to Europe and spent, um, you know, part of the time looking at how European modernism, the sort of classic modern architecture of France and Germany, how did that sort of encounter places like Turkey or Portugal, sort of the edges of Europe where you see modern architecture starting to deal with different material or construction cultures and, and so on. You yourself have experienced these, as it were, edges in your own life, uh, traveling to different states and seeing different kinds of environments. And obviously in New Zealand, with that experience too. But then in later life with your professional eyes, as it were, that academic context, you're also exploring what those edges look like. What did you learn? I mean, it's so curious to think about how do other peoples, other cultures, other places see architecture and how, how do they respond to those cultural edge zones? Again, there's sort of maybe two ways to look at it. One is there's a practical sort of change that happens when you have cultures mixing. There was a town I went to in southwest China, kind of on the edge of Tibet, again, part of this trip. And in that town, I climbed up onto a, a local mountain sort of next to the town. It was a mountainous area. And you could look down, you could see like the houses of the Tibetans had a certain look. The houses of the Muslim population had a certain look. And the houses of the Han Chinese had a look. And you could see this sort of map almost formed in the way the roofs were built, the materials that they used. So buildings and cultural identity are very closely tied. and you know, we see that less in the West because we tend to live in a somewhat monolithic culture, despite the fact that there's tremendous diversity. You don't go to a city and see a house that looks like, you know, a certain culture built it versus another culture. You, you, you generally see in the United States, those differences are manifest economically. So houses of, of more well-off folks versus the poor look very different but you don't see them adjacent because they tend to be segregated. So I think there's some interesting issues um, in, in that respect. 
the other side of my exploration, though, uh, in, in Tibet was to look at how, I mean, one of the things I was very, very curious about was how does a sort of religious culture, societal culture based on a religion that essentially Buddhism doesn't believe in the the permanence of the physical world. It, the physical world is sort of an artificial sort of construct. Uh, the real world exists beyond that. Um, how does that culture actually develop a physical culture of making that is so distinct? If you look at Tibetan architecture, it's very distinct and it's very material intensive and it's in the world. So it, I just was very curious about how, how would you have a, this sort of religious world intersecting with its sort of antithesis similar with sort of shaker architecture in new england the, the shakers again is a, a sort of a, a christian culture from 18th century i think is when most of that sort of work started to become evident there's a very sort of strong culture of making in a religion that is really about the the, uh, the afterlife and the other world again it's sort of interesting to me that these sort of very materially material cultures evolve out of a material kind of philosophies. Is there an answer to that question or is it, does it remain still something of a mystery? I think it's a bit of a mystery. Um, but in the, in terms of um, Tibet, I think the, the mystery resides in the, in, in a compromise that um, Tibetan Buddhism made that um, understands that living in the harsh environment of high altitude Tibet, the Tibetan plateau is, Averages fifteen thousand feet. I mean, it's a very for, forbidding place for people to live. That the ideals of the sort of philosophical, religious sort of underpinning of society, you can't actually live that way. For example, I mean, Buddhists don't believe in eating meat because they don't want to harm the, the animals. And you know, we, there's stories of Buddhist monks like not stepping on ants because they could be a re reincarnated, you know, person from another another era. People eat meat because that's all, that's the only source of protein. So there are compromises that are made. And I think it's interesting to see how cultures and philosophies can make compromises because of pragmatic need um, and how they justify those, those things. And so in Tibetan architecture, you see a lot of symbolism. And in Tibetan temples, the symbolism is really referencing the house and that there's elements of the building that if you look at a Tibetan house, they're essentially representations of what you would see on a house, and they're building this sort of house that's connected to the the world of um, of sort of the pure philosophy of, of of the religion. And so, there's always a connection back to the realities of of living in in the world. In my head, I'm trying to hold a picture, an imaginary picture of these three cultures coming together that you describe in that southwest Chinese town. And I'm, I'm wondering about what would an architecture look like that, that bridged, connected those three seemingly disparate architectures, as you described, the, the ruse, these three sets of ruse being different. And I'm wondering if you have or how you would approach designing an architectural outcome that did bridge some set of cultural identities, whether they be sort of religious or societal or you know, some other forms of intersection. It's a, it, I, it's a fascinating project to, to do that. I think, um, I, I you know, I'd, I'd love to work on a project where we were challenged to bring together cultures and communities that don't generally mix because of choice perhaps, or, or, or maybe the actions of segregation. How do you bring those cultures together, respect them both, not blend them in the sense of erasing difference, but enhancing difference, but, in a productive way. I think that could be quite fascinating. I, there are examples of projects like this in religious communities. In Omaha, there's the Tri-Faith Initiative. There are three buildings, a mosque, a, a, a synagogue, and a, and a church. In um, the United Arab Emirates, a similar sort of project is under construction, a much more glamorous and, and better funded, maybe, um, project in Abu Dhabi that is bringing together the same sort of mix of, of religions Buildings are designed by the same architect in that case. They have a similar materiality, different form. Again, it's like the, the site in Omaha, there's three structures with a central space where things merge. And I think the interesting part of that is the central space is kind of left open for uh, you know, unpredicted you know, events and collaborations where the, each, each sort of 
in that case, religious identity has its own structure that is like it's with its own symbolism and 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 uh, you know, requirements sort of built into it. Was there a moment when you actually were really cognizant that you were thinking outside of yourself about the spaces that you were in, whether it was the architecture or the man-made intervention that you're encountering? Did you have an epiphany like that? I don't think it goes back to a single moment, but I think it was a sort of a slow burn, so to speak. Um, you know, living in, I'm coming from New England, my family's from New England. There's a sort of very distinct sort of cultural identity in, in that world. And, you know, with the deep history of colonialism and immigration, um, you know, my family, both sides of my family go back to like the 17th century in the United States, kicked out of England, you know, for various reasons. It, it's a bit of an insular culture there. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I grew up in Maine, which I think is still the whitest state in the United States. Um, and, you know, it was a bit isolating, but, um, you know, moving to New Zealand, dealing with sort of cultural differences there. I mean, we actually moved to New Zealand. My, my parents, my father loves the ocean. He was in the Coast Guard, loves to sail. But they also wanted my, my younger brother and I to understand the, the monumental move that we were making from Maine to New Zealand. So we did this by sea. And we went on a British immigrant ship with 10-pound immigrants. So the British government at that time sponsored British citizens to move to the Commonwealth countries. They would pay 10 pounds and they'd get passage to you know, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa. And so this ship basically went around the world. And we, we got on in Florida, then it went to England, and a lot of people got on there. Canary Islands, South Africa, three ports in Australia, and then Auckland, New Zealand. And you know, there's a lot of interesting people going to new places, changing their lives dramatically, moving from you know, familiar, deep history of England to the Commonwealth. Um, and it is kind of an old colonial sort of way of, of operating. But then, you know, in New Zealand, we, we started to learn about the Maori people and, you know, who had been there much longer than, than Europeans. Um, in the seventies, there was quite a lot of tension. Now we go to New Zealand and Maori language is everywhere. Um, you know, the, the government uses Maori language in almost every sort of official document, uh, in addition to English. So, thinking about how those cultures come together started to become really evident then. Actually, one, one moment that was you know, upsetting and dramatic that happened along the way, we were in South Africa on this ship, the height of apartheid. We were stuck in port for a couple of days because of a storm longer than we should have been there. And we remember one moment, my memory's a little foggy, but my dad keeps telling me about it. We were on the deck and we saw an African man basically being arrested for didn't seem like anything he was on the on the dock sort of below us and being sort of hauled away and it was very shocking to see what happens in a country that has institutionalized racism like apartheid in south africa and and really kind of understanding that this is the sort of the the darkest side of cultures mixing as in not mixing and 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 one dominating another um, so these are just moments along the way that kind of inspired my sort of thinking about trying to think about how architecture can actually be a healing moment in communities and, and thinking about practical ways to make that happen. Why did you become an architect? It, it takes a huge amount of study academically and, and then professional practice to achieve any sort of level of um, you know, sustainability and, and permanence in, in terms of doing the work. So big leap. So why did you become an architect? Uh, it goes, goes way back to my childhood, even in, in Maine before the move to New Zealand. I used to draw quite a lot like kids, but I drew very, very precise drawings, as my parents said, the, you know, really sort of refined drawings of, of real things or imaginary things. Um, and I also built models, played with Lego, and a lot of those are pretty common sort of backgrounds to architecture. Um, but sort of designing through making things is really kind of how I kind of developed certain propensities for creativity. When we were in New Zealand, I took a mechanical drafting class at um, equivalent to junior high school level at that point and then in the high school and really enjoyed 
the process of drawing technical drawings, like very precise technical drawings. And so it kind of came at, um, at architecture from this representational side um, and also sort of the artistic side. I mean, I was very interested in the sort of creative process. So it was not a challenge for me to kind of determine where I wanted to go career-wise. In high school, I worked for architects. So I had a mentor in a program through my high school in Maine. And then after high school, before even going to college, I worked in an architect's office and he was, the architect was very generous, allowing me to help design things, to, to do full sets of drawings. It was a fantastic experience and I was just out of high school. But then I ended up going to college at a university that didn't have an undergraduate architecture major. So I did as much architecture as I could, but was really an art major and did a lot of theater projects, um, designing sets and technical direction, things like that you know, sort of refining the sort of creative process outside of the specifics of the architectural practice. And then I moved to California, worked for a couple of years before going to professional school in, in architecture at Berkeley. You know, I worked for an artist two days a week as a, a studio assistant and then worked for an architect three days a week as a you know junior architecture intern. How have things changed then? I, I would imagine that since that time, in your life, these things you're exploring just as a child and as a teen before you commit to formal course of study and now since you've been practicing. I mean, in the same way that the built world around us has seen different shifts depending upon materiality, human needs, these sorts of things, I would imagine too that the kind of conversations that architects are having about what the purpose of architecture is has also changed too. So I'm wondering, what is different in the practice of architecture? What, what kinds of conversations are architects and the practice of architecture now having about the future of both the profession, but also what its function is, its role is? Mm -hmm. it, it's a great question. I think there's several different ways of, of answering that. On the one hand, the sort of procedures of designing architecture are very different. When I sort of entered the profession, I was drawing by hand, like making construction drawings with pencils and ink and so on. And, and that's kind of how I entered into the profession. I loved making drawings and here I was being paid to make drawings. So I was like, this is great. And I thought like, man, I've got a, a skill I can use it anywhere in the world forever. Um, of course, not that long after that, computer-aided design and drafting sort of took over from that hand drawing is completely gone. I mean, architects sketch still and designers sketch. Nobody, I mean, practically nobody uses hand drafting as a technical way of producing architectural work. It's all computational. And it's moved on from the computer doing two-dimensional drawings to com computer modeling. Uh, we use building information models now to design buildings. So everything is designed fully 3D. And the 2D drawing is really an sort of a secondary output from that process. So that side of it has changed tremendously. And the next step of that is artificial intelligence, which is starting to enter into the profession. A lot of architects are trying to understand how artificial intelligence will transform practice. Um, and I think the jury's still out on what, what really is going to happen. Is it going to spell doom for the profession? Is it people maybe predict or... Is there a way that architecture will just evolve with a new way of, of working? And, a new, and the name architect might mean somebody doing something very different than they, they once did. On the other side of things, the, the relationships between clients and contractors and architects has changed quite a lot. Uh, in, in the traditional way of doing things, a client hires an architect, they design a building, they put it out to bid find a contractor, the contractor bids it. It's kind of a linear process. Now contractors get involved much earlier. Sometimes we have contracts, integrated design practice or you know, design build contracts where the architect and the contractor and the owner are in a very different contract contractual relationship to produce a building. And that's really based on optimization and efficiency and cost control. Um, but that changed a lot the way architects actually are involved in, in projects. And it, it, it removes one more, another way of removing the sort of art out of architecture to think of it as a, as a, a, a different kind of practice. So I, I think those are sort of, you know, significant ways that, that the practice of architecture has changed. And the last thing I would say, I think, is again, it's sort of eroding the sort of under, the, maybe the myth of the architect as a, as a kind of, 
artist, there's a lot of effort to think about architecture as a kind of labor. There's an organization called the Architecture, architecture Lobby that is trying to promote the notion of a labor union for architects, to think about architectural staff as workers. And part of this is a reaction against the sort of the abuse of the artist sort of mentality and that like, oh, you could work all night because you're an artist. Uh, we're only paying you, of course, for the regular day, right? So um, to really understand the rights of and responsibilities of, of architecture as a, you know, a, a kind of labor. Um, and, and that's having a transformative effect, I think, in terms of how, how young architects kind of engage in, in practice. And, and there's definitely firms out there that are very supportive. I don't want to make it sound like it, you know, firms are abusive, but, um, but that has happened. How are you exploring through your work, the human condition? Also, how are you exploring yourself through your practice? I, a small question. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, um, I, there are architects who are very interested in neuroscience right now and the impact of architectural space on the human psyche and thinking about this both in terms of how we create spaces, but also how we inhabit spaces and how they have an impact on us at a maybe a neurophysical kind of level. It's not a research that I'm engaged in directly, but I'm, I'm you know, starting to become more influenced by it. And I'm, I'm hopefully working on a project with, with another firm and that uh, is, does a lot of research on this. And, and if we get the commission, it'd be a great opportunity to think about how what we create has direct impact on individuals and how can we measure that and how can we use that as a that knowledge as a way to improve the outcome of of certain kinds of, of buildings so going back to my comments about building community i think what we're interested in is is trying to find ways that make architecture meaningful to people in deeper ways than say surface treatment or selection of materials but to think about how you move through space, how spaces might be conducive to sort of social interaction. I'm very interested in the idea of, it's an old sort of Russian constructivist idea from the early uh, 20th century about the social condenser, which is a kind of environment that would bring workers together. And this is sort of, you know, early sort of Soviet kind of thinking about architecture but to bring workers together to have these sort of positive social experiences that would be creative in some way. And so, you know, some of the work that we've done at the Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts is inspired by this idea and thinking about, you know, what is the intersection between the, the general public who goes to see galleries and shows at the Bemis and the artists who are residents there and how do they interact and what, what, how do spaces, how are they conducive to making positive interactions between the creative people and the consumers of culture. So I think that's kind of where, where that occurs for me to think about the human condition through interaction of people and architecture is essentially where that happens, where people come together. We're in a room, we're in architecture, having a conversation. We wouldn't, we're not doing this on the street because it probably wouldn't be a good place to do that. So somehow architecture has created an environment where we can have a conversation. And so I'm interested in what, what that is, not the technical things of soundproofing and this and that, but the sort of more ethereal aspects of that lighting, comfort, and, you know, thermal environments, things like that. Um, for me personally, I think it, it's maybe harder to answer that. I mean, I really enjoy the creative process. I love working on numerous projects at once because I think they intersect both my own psyche, but also they impact each other. So, I always have several projects going at once. I mean, I try not to have too many because I want to be able to manage the, the work, of course, but working on projects with students, working with clients and collaborators on, on different kinds of architecture. It was said to me once by an instructor at, at Berkeley that everything you design has to be designed for yourself first before you think about how you're designing for others, uh, which isn't to say we're imposing our own ideas on other people, but that we have to kind of imagine how we would inhabit a space or how we would um, how we would react to that space before we can start to imagine how it would impact the future inhabitants. My 
My guest today has been the architect, Jeff Day. Jeff, this has just been fascinating, just a really thrilling conversation. Uh, so thank you so much for sharing that time with us. Thank you so much, Stuart. It's been really a pleasure. And uh, your questions have really kind of made me think a lot about what we do. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. Both sides of my family go back to like the 17th century in the United States, kicked out of England. I'm sorry. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.